Well, what a happy day to talk about happiness. And yes, we're going to talk about happiness. You know, for the past 10 or so years especially, there's the emergence of what now is described as happiness studies. Uh, These are study programs that are saturated throughout, really, the various disciplines, history, sociology, psychology, etc. And I confess that uh, I had a a little bit of a less-than-excited response to the hearing that this was a kind of movement. I confess that my first reaction to learning about it led to skepticism, that, that one day we would read headlines much like the one I came across in a recent journal, quote, America is obsessed with happiness, and it makes us miserable. I think that's probably, there's some truth to that. Um, the kind of navel-gazing, crippling self-consciousness, am I the right person? Am I following my passions? Am I doing what I love? What is my purpose in life? Am I happy as I should be? I think, I mean, I think if I were to ask my grandfather, do you ask those questions? He would look at me with a cocked head like my dog does every time I give her a command. He'd like, what? I mean, I'm just living. Are you happy? Yeah, I'm happy. I mean, that's, Almost identical to the video uh, that I took of my grandfather, who was born somewhere in the uh, first decade of the 1900s. And it strikes me as as odd, and I am a little bit cynical, honestly. But there is something more substantive, though, in what is developing here. And I do want to talk a little bit more about it today. It all began, I think, in 1968, when... Robert F. Kennedy urged Americans to think about how we measure what makes a country great in a new way. The gross national product, he said, doesn't measure the health of our children, the beauty of our poetry, our courage, our wisdom, or our compassion. It measures everything in short except that which makes life worthwhile. Now, if that's what we mean by happiness, then I think I'm... I'm on board. Jeffrey Sachs, the director of Earth Institute of Columbia University, has taken up that very call, that clarion call by Kennedy. And he's wanted to think bigger about how we measure what's important and what's not. And is one of the editors of the newly released World Happiness Report. It's motivated by a growing worldwide awareness that countries could do a much better job raising the well-being of their citizens if we are not just measuring the gross national project, a product, that we are measuring the wrong things, it, it concluded, and the changing the wrong things. And when we overemphasize our income as opposed to other variables in our society, we miss the mark. You see, the idea came out of a meeting in Bhutan, the famed country where the king many years ago called Bhutan to pursue gross national happiness, as opposed to gross national product. And that is in line with a worldwide recognition now that pursuing GNP doesn't get us where we want to go. So 30 years ago, studies founded in the American context are getting richer, but they're not getting any happier. This remains the case today. In fact, just recently, if you came out now with a happiness score, I mean, it's kind of gotten a little crazy, I know. But there's a happiness score that rose that, that, that judged countries worldwide. Maybe you saw it. And, every, and, and almost worldwide, happiness is increasing, except USA, where our rank continues to fall. This year, we rank 17th in worldwide happiness and dropping. The report from the UN's Sustainable Development Solutions Network is based on how people around the world rate their overall satisfaction with life, not just on how they feel at any given moment. It's a pretty complicated system that they use, but it it looked pretty substantial to me, which is why I'm even breathing it here. It shows that while economic conditions matter up to a point in the U.S., in fact, studies show up to $75,000, and after that, there's no discernible difference in happiness. The factors such as life expectancy, freedom, and especially, especially, Social interaction and support. That's interesting. 
what we learn about in these studies is interesting by the social scientists, begin to point us into the direction, believe it or not, of Scripture. Because it's amazing how the worldview of the Bible in many ways complements this growing trend to rethink the meaning of life and what's really important. And so this morning, as we think about these new members coming into a community of faith, as we think about our own life and what it means to be a Christian, there's a trend even now within our own faith where we're beginning to rethink what salvation is. And not in a sense that we're overturning the Bible, but rediscovering it. Is salvation a private thing? Is it just something that we experience personally and individually? And does that mean morals are described in terms of personal morals, things that we do individually? Well, yes. But overwhelmingly, as this very baptism today illustrates, we find in Scripture a vision, the vision that Habakkuk described, a vision that is throughout the the scriptures from Eden all the way to Revelations, a vision of a salvation that promises a promised land. And by promised land, it means a place of communal social flourishing. Throughout the scripture, salvation is described as being admitted into. That's the great mystery of how all the great nations would come together And they would become a household of God, a living temple, a flourishing relationships. Now again, even when I use this word relationship, I don't mean one-on-one flourishing. I mean a kind of social dynamic, a social construct, what would perhaps be better described as a a polis, a, a, a city. It's God's city that is being promised. And so what I want us to do very briefly is is look at this city that is promised to us. A city that we're going to argue is not yet, but is now. And that will then inform everything about happiness and how and where we ought to be looking for it. But more importantly, our witness. For you see, the whole world is starving for it. Let's pray. And so, God, be with us now that we might be given the eyes to see and the ears to hear what you want us to see and hear in the gospel to the glory of Jesus Christ alone. We pray in Christ's name then. Amen. Well, did you hear that incredible vision of Revelation? I mean, it's it's just dripping with happiness. He will wipe away every tear from every eye. Death shall be no more. You could not have said happiness better. There shall be no mourning, no crying, no pain. All those former things, gone. Chapter 22, verse 33, there will be no more accursed. There's a symbolism. Did you hear it of a high wall? This symbolism is inspired by Ezekiel's vision. In fact, much of this passage is inspired by Ezekiel's vision. And you see, in Ezekiel's day, a strong wall meant a safe place. That is, it became a symbol, and you see it all through the apocalyptic genre. You see it all through the prophetic, this idea of a great fortified city of God. A place where No danger can come in. That's what he's referring to here. This idea of protection and flourishing. Note too how this is reaffirming in both visions how the wall carefully measured. It's very carefully measured as as symbolic of it being carefully maintained or sealed. We're told the angel who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. So this is a place of happiness, point number one. But it begs the question, well, what makes this city so happy? 
What is it? And I'm going to give you four things here. Number one, first of all, this new city of God. Well, I'm going to use now a kind of cliche term, but I like it. It's a neighborhood. It's a neighborhood. Now, what do I mean by that? Notice especially how this holy city is described as a new Jerusalem come down out of heaven. Now, I've said this many times, but let me remind you, heaven is not up there. Heaven is here. Jesus brings it with him. The prototype of heaven and the order and the beauty and the communion of the, of the Trinity God himself comes down to us in a very powerful way. It's the vision that began in Eden. The very, the very idea of, of heaven coming to earth starts in Eden. And so we have this antitype of a, of, of a sense that now finally becomes typed right into our midst. And we're then told about this heaven that the best way to, to symbolize what's happening here is the birth of a family where the bride is coming or is being met by her groom. A groom come out of heaven to wed with the church of Jesus Christ and thus a family is formed. And what we know about this family then is it becomes the very dwelling place, quote unquote, of God. The dwelling place of God is with humanity. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, plural. This isn't a description of an individualistic relationship with Jesus Christ, though there is an individual relationship. But it's not individualistic. It is socialistic. It is communal. His people, God himself, will be with them and they will be with their God. And so the first thing we see about this happiness is it's got to include God. I mean, that's just so obvious from Scripture. You're thinking, well, duh, I'm at church, you know, I expect you to say that. But it's amazing. It's amazing how absent that idea is, even among Christians. As we walk out of this building and put so much hope that which we can do. So much hope in our ingenuity. It was the great fall of, of Babel, trusting in human ingenuity to build that ziggurat to heaven, that heaven could come to earth, only to be frustrated and be reduced to Babel. I mean, that is what we do when we raise our children to ultimately trust in their education to ultimately trust in their money for happiness, to ultimately trust in what they can do in their prestige, to ultimately trust in, you know, go on and on and on. It's amazing. I mean, this whole political fiasco, if I could use that term, is just pitted on every side, inside and out, with this messianic ambition for what humanity can do through their political ambitions. It's incredible. Don't get me wrong. Everything I just mentioned is important in a penultimate way, in a, at best, complementary way. But what we know is that the kingdom that makes us happy, the city that is going to be a happy city, is a city that only God supernaturally can do. It's a city that's born again, described as a new creation in our hearts. We call it being born again. I mean, I know that's used, unfortunately, at football games. I wish it weren't. It trivializes it. You must be Gordon behind the field goals. But it's just a reality that we must be born again, regenerated, the very baptism that we celebrated today, we believe in the mystery of Christ's presence in, with, and through his church is more than just a sign. It's more the, even than putting a mark on this child saying it belongs to this visible church, a seal. We believe 
And it's entering it into a communal context where the Holy Spirit is uniquely present through the preaching of the Word, through the communion of the saints, through the sacraments, through the prayers. We believe there is a power, a power that Leah and everyone in this room must have in order to be brought into the city of God ultimately and eternally. And it's the power of God's Spirit sent by Jesus Christ to execute, to transact that which Christ alone accomplished for us on that cross. Without that power, there is no beatific vision of happiness. That's very, very important. If, if you were just to think for a moment of how that reshapes your priorities in your home, in your child raising, in your marriage, in your own life, what would make you anxious now? What would not make you quite so anxious? These are huge, huge issues. But I said briefly, so we'll move on. There is a community of family this neighborhood of God that makes us happy. And only God's neighborhood can build and bring this happiness. You notice the symbolism there. The symbolism of the twelve. Clearly, there's a continuity here. This is the same vision that was given to the Old Testament Israel. The twelve tribes of Israel are now the twelve apostles. Acts takes great care to ensure that we have 12 apostles in order to maintain that symbolism. And here, the vision maintains it as well. There is then this symbol of 12 tribes and 12 apostles in the 12 gates, in the 12 tribes, in the 12 apostles of the Lamb, as we heard there. This dwelling place now being described as a temple presence of God. All of this reinforcing that this is an amazing neighborhood of interconnected relationships, human to human, informed and infused with the human to divine. In fact, it goes on to say it, and it's, it's trying to say it so loudly. Did you notice that little description? And I saw no temple in the city. Why? He's describing this special place that is in the world, but not of the world, even if it's for the world, that we call the church, the temple of God, after the very pattern of the temple of Jerusalem. It was meant for the nations, by the way. They had a whole entry court for the nations, the court of the nations. And it had gotten, it had gotten lost, that vision, by the time of Jesus, which is why he turned it over in the court of the, of the Gentiles, the court of the nations, his anger burned because he knew that, that while this earth is not yet the temple, that that holy temple on a mountain in Jerusalem was meant to be the very neighborhood of God that would offer this great and flourishing happiness of life by being reunited to God through Christ, his son. And so I saw no temple in the city. This is huge. Because now, the city is earth. The whole earth is a temple. He describes it. It's as if the whole earth enjoys the presence of Christ as the whole earth enjoys the sun. There is no place where it doesn't shine. This is, just gets me chill bumps. If you believe this, this just has got to get you some chill bumps. We're going to go back to this theme, though. Because now, while the kingdom has come, it is still a kingdom of temples, plural. But that's significant. Temples, plural, that point to the day when their existence, the existence of this temple, and the communion of saints that it makes this temple the temple, it will not be in but not of anymore. Oh boy, can you not wait for that day? That tension? Gone? In, but not of. Wow. That's what's happening here. And so we have this neighborhood, and don't forget, of God. All the time throughout the... You never have the word just kingdom. 
My, I had a, a professor, David Wells, and, and he would literally take off 10 points in an exam if you wrote the word, the kingdom. Because he, he wanted to reiterate over and over and over, it's only the kingdom that God supernaturally can build. Right? Kingdom of God. Neighborhood of God. That's what we are. And that's what this vision anticipates the whole earth will be. Secondly, we see that there's this new, not only is there a new neighborhood, but there's a new morality, a new law, a new justice and order. It is a city. It says, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter into it. There is going to be a very careful, a very careful system of justice. And it describes this so that there's going to be no, nothing lawless or unjust or untrue or unmerciful or unloving in it. It's put in the negative terms, but here it is, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Glory and honor of nations, of course, described as defined by the holiness of Christ. No longer will there be anything accursed, we're told, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Now, that's a very important compliment there. If you're, if you're not a Christian, or perhaps you are, and, and this will be a novel thing, but, but the, the dis, overwhelmingly in the Scripture, law is valued as a beautiful thing. Now, granted, there's a use of the law in Rome's etc., that it became bastardized, if you will, and, and, and it was a curse because it was not matched with grace. But it's very important that we don't then think that the gospel is lawless. Quite the contrary. What we have here is this picture of a neighborhood and the visual of a throne of law, of rule, of power, and by that throne... There is no sin. And immediately we go, ooh, because we talk a lot about sin, and oh man, it's safe to be sinful here, we, we say. And it's true. I don't like that phrase quite like, it didn't quite come. But, but we, we make it, but here's the thing. Let me explain what I'm trying to say here. You take law, or you take this ruler, and you forget that he's the Lamb of God, then law is something to fear. But if you match the law with the Lamb of God, Christ being both and at the same time, our great King and our High Priest and even the sacrificed Lamb that the priest sacrifices. He's all of that, if you will, in image. Now we're restored to the law. You see, before the Lamb of God took away our sins by his own atoning sacrifice on our behalf, so as to meet and match justice for us. Before all that happened, we were petrified of the law. Because the law condemned us. It exposed all of our sins, all of our shortcomings, all of our trespasses, all the things we just confessed earlier. The law is, is a bitter and cold instrument that we're afraid of, and rightly so. For it condemns. But then you add the Lamb of God. The one who himself was condemned on our behalf. Who became our righteousness according to the law. As he therefore credits his righteousness to us when we receive his work on our behalf by faith alone. Now we are justified by the law. Do you see? Now, we don't have to, we no longer have to, to, to uh, justify ourselves. We are set free from that horrible burden. Only Christians, real, for real Christians, can understand what Jesus meant when he says, my burden is light and my yoke is easy. I mean, if you're a religious person where the only thing you know about the law is that it just makes me feel guiltier and guiltier and guiltier, and you come to church, you hear all the things you're supposed to do, and you leave church, you try to do them, you fall again, you come back, you hear what you're supposed to do. I mean, it, how many years is it going to take before you say, I'm out of here? 
I would be. It's so important that we come to this table every Sunday. That whatever law we hear by this table is made our friend. But I want to go back to that point. In the Bible, it rejoices in a lawful city. In a city of laws. In a city where there is rule and governance from an ultimate perfect ruler. And remember, the sum total of the law, remember what it is, according to Jesus and Deuteronomy? How do we sum the law up? Love. Truth is love. Love is truth. This is so cool. And so we have this beautiful new city order. A city order of law. Justice. Mercy. Together. The city, therefore, that, that is on earth, a new city of God where the throne of the Lamb is at its center. And then third, this new city is described in terms that makes it clear that it is exactly what the world has been waiting for. It goes out of its way to attach this vision to Eden. Did you notice that? It's like from Eden lost to Eden regained, this vision. All of a redemptive history that has been yearning from day one. The whole story of our people. And our people, I'm meaning multi-ethnic people. All the nations. The whole story could be summed up with a life and pursuit of Eden. It, I mean... Read all the utopian books. You know, there have been thousands and thousands, even just in the western side of it, of utopias. We're all. We, we, it was planted in us at our, at our creation. We were destined for paradise. We were destined for Eden. We were destined for this very city, neighborhood of God. And so notice, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding the fruit each month. Attaching, therefore, Eden and the tree of life, the promise that started the whole story off in the Jewish Christian Bible. The promise of life eternal. And life not just as an existence life, but life tight after the place of Eden itself that was just lush just lush with flourishing. And so this city is described as satisfying what the whole story has been about from the beginning. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That is the God of the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, he says, right after this passage, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. This is a place where everybody walking in this city, how'd you get here? And we'll all be able to say, by grace alone. By grace alone. How did you make it over here, Billy Bob? By grace alone. That's what this place is, without payment. It's free. It's really free. Knock, and it shall be opened. Seek, and you shall be found. That's the promise of the Christian Bible. There's not anyone in the world that wants grace and seeks it from God, the God of history, the true God, the living God, manifest through Jesus Christ. There's not a man, woman, or child that will be denied. And we know that for them to ask and to knock is the first sign of being born again. For one must be born again to even acknowledge and to see that I am in need of a Savior, that I can't save myself. Something we have to pray for, not earn. We ask. And so Eden is betrayed as both covenantal, this place of law and lordship, but that's not a scary thought to us because the very Lord of this city is the very Lamb of God. I think I've, 
I've shared, I know I've shared this before, but I had the privilege of, of uh, burying my father, uh, uh, doing the funeral. And he, he wasn't, uh, to my knowledge, he showed no evidence of being a Christian. And we prayed for him. He, we made a little pact, if I did it, that he would read some things. And uh, he did. My, my uh, sister actually read it to him the night that he prayed that he died. And someone asked me, you know, honestly, they said, Pastor, I mean, how could you do that? You know, and how, how, how do you relate to this? I mean, you're up there doing a sermon. We celebrated his life. It was a really joyful occasion. He's a lot, lot of stuff to, to, to celebrate. But, but I just didn't go there. I did not go there. Um, I, don't, I don't think it's my right to go there, uh, to make judgment on my father's, you know, heart or anyone that I don't know. Um, but I did say this this person. It was after the funeral, sitting over at my father's cabin, and he kind of asked me this question. I said, well, listen, and I know this person, and I don't think this person's a believer either. And I said, look, there's one thing I know. Every time I tell a story, I have to start crying. So if I start crying, you'll know why. But if there's one thing I know, it's that my father will meet Jesus. He is the judge. Everyone, we don't meet Peter. Peter might get, get to us after Jesus. Don't take that story. We meet Jesus. And I can't think of anyone in the world I'd rather my father meet than Jesus. Because if there's anyone that loves sinners, Jesus proved it over and over and over in astonishing ways. We, mystery, death is a mystery. Life is a mystery. Faith is a mystery, ultimately to us even. But one thing I know, Jesus loves sinners. There's a thief next to Jesus when he died, having done not one work of righteousness by faith in Christ in his whole life, having not searched out for Jesus one single time. And at that moment, As the man's eyes were about to close, he received Christ as his Savior, and Jesus promised him he would see him in paradise. I'm trying to convey this idea that it is good news that Jesus is on a throne ruling. I don't want anyone else to rule my father's destiny. I don't want anyone else to rule this city. And his laws, they are beautiful. They are good. They are merciful and true. And there's this description that that seems to just slap you in the face, to be honest, because he talks about those who will be thrown into the fiery furnace, if you will. There is a justice. And the scripture teaches that there is a hell. But no one is in hell who did not reject Christ. No one, in some way or fashion. There's a mystery there. And so this new city is a place, it's a neighborhood, it's a community, it's, it's a polis, it's a city, it's law and mercy, and it's the very hope of the nations. It's over and over. Did you hear that word, Nations as if from Judea to all of the world. Its light, will be the nation, by the na- its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory unto it. All this narcissistic kingdoms that we've put up with over the last thousands and thousands of years, we've got this great picture of kings bringing their glory and putting it on Christ. 21, 26, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. The presence of the nations is clearly an integration of restored intimacy, where there is no rivalry, where there is no racism, where there is no, and you just put the isms in there. None of that stuff anymore. None of that stuff. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. Oh, do we need healing? We live in a world, your neighbors are just 
just craving for healing. In some ways, the media, as much as I think that it's, it's just obsessed with all the negative stuff, it sure is making us thirsty <laughs> to watch all this stuff, all this ridiculous stuff. You know, the Ephesians describes the gospel as, a, as being preaching peace. Peace to you who are far away from me. Peace to those who are near to me. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This vision is so beautiful. Gosh, you just got to love this. One final point. This vision is now and not yet. Did you notice the the final exhortation, verse 7? The one who conquers will have this heritage, but not so the cowardly. And he goes on to describe. You see, this conquering, those who conquer, he's referring to this classic idea that's throughout Revelations. It's really the whole purpose of Revelations. You know, Revelations, if you haven't studied it, it's, it's really seven single visions over and over and over again in greater and greater escalation. It's seven visions of how the whole thing works within this age. It's, it's a vision of what life is like after his ascension until he comes again. And the overwhelming purpose is to over and over and over say, it looks bleak now, but Christ wins. That's it says it seven times, very clearly. It looks bleak now, but hang in there, persevere, Christ wins. That's the purpose of Revelations. It's, a, it's, it's encouraging us today to a patient faith. As from the precedent of the Old Testament saints. Did you hear the Habakkuk passage that we read today? The late 7th century prophet Habakkuk saw the world crumbling all around him. The more hopeless the future seemed, the more God's people were tempted to live for the present and not put their hope in the future. And so people, Israel, had more and more forgotten God in their evil pursuits of wealth. If you read it, it talks about it. You see, when we've lost hope for this vision, the vision of God, we're going to start trying to build it ourselves, you see? That's why this sermon's so important. And we start having to make our own wealth because we think our wealth can buy it. We have to make our own prestige. We have to get our own power. Politicize whatever it is. And so people of Israel had more and more forgotten God in their evil pursuits of wealth and worldly pleasures, even entering into forbidden political alliances with Egypt in order to gain their thirsty heart's desire of a promised land. While professing loyalty to God all the while, the old covenant church of Habakkuk era had grown weary and impatient in waiting for the rewards of faith. And as a result, began trusting not in God, but in their own human ingenuity and political maneuvering in order to build for themselves this heaven on earth. And yet the whole thing was about to come to a tragic halt, you see, as it always does, if not at death itself. For what Habakkuk feared was indeed starting to happen in the great campaign of the Babylonian army, which had begun its march towards Jerusalem the days prior to the Babylonian captivity. Enter Habakkuk's prophecy that you've read this morning. The task at hand for Habakkuk was seeing as he did the coming days of suffering and trial was to exhort the remaining remnant people of Israel to be patient in waiting for God to come and make good on all his promises to live by God's laws as aliens, albeit residents in a foreign land. Even when the whole world seemed to be going to hell in a handbasket, he's exhorting the church, don't leave the faith. Don't leave God. Don't give up on his laws and on his promised vision. Back at called for faith, 
And by faith he meant a patient faith, one that continued the course even when it seemed as if God was nowhere to be found. Sound familiar, increasingly? His message, did you hear it? The vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Dot, 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 quote, the righteous shall live by faith alone. Sound familiar? It's one of the most often quoted prophet, prophets in uh, the New Testament. We see it in Romans, we see it in Galatians, and we see it in Hebrews. It's interesting, and in Hebrews, it's used to set up what we know, it's in, used in chapter 10 to set up what's in chapter 11, which is this long parade of people who even prior to Christ never entered into the promise. This whole long parade of people who never gave up, who persevered. And then that's before Christ. And then he applies it to those of us who are after Christ. And this is where it gets kind of interesting because in chapter 12, He's going to remind us that we already have the kingdom of God. He, he, he admonishes us not to forsake the assembling together. And then he describes our great assembling for worship as presently in heaven. By the communion of the Spirit with Christ in heaven, that we are now partakers of the city of God. And yet we're not yet fully partaking of it as it is envisioned in Revelations. So we still have persevering to do. We still do it. But here's the thing. He says, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in the festive gathering. We are here today, and think about what just happened here. I would say most of your neighbors have never experienced a moment where they came together in a community context, believing of people who believe the same things and could sing those things together. I mean, what what a I mean, if you're here new, I can tell you, I understand, man. When first thing that I had to get used to when I became a Christian was singing. It was the most awkward thing in my life. I had never done it in my life. Except for maybe when I saw my parents a little bit drunk at Christmas. Singing jingle bells. But, I mean, it was just a, I will never get sitting in a Bible study, and everybody was singing a hymn. It's like my first little small group Bible study. And I, I was just, I literally was looking around, where can I get out of this room? This is weird. So if you're here, I know, we look pretty weird. <laughs> but imagine what it symbolizes, how powerful that was. A people who come together who love each other's children, who love each other's, and, and who, who is high when you're high together when you're, and we're low when we're low together, at least at our best. Sometimes we, we are certainly imperfect. And, and just imagine that. I, I, I remember hearing about, you know, we just had a hope, uh, the Bridges of Hope thing. The power in those neighborhoods of seeing those blue shirts helping one another out. I heard that story, Carrie, I think it was at your house. I think I saw you here, Carrie. Where are you, Carrie? There. Didn't that happen in your neighborhood last year? The neighbors saw that or something like that? And just... Yeah, it was the impact week. Yeah. They just can't believe what they're seeing. Yeah. It's like, wow, look at this. So what am I trying to say? Not only is the church essential, For you to persevere in faith. Because it is our little peak of heaven. It is our number one witness strategy. We need to get this church into neighborhoods. You're going to hear a lot about that next year. We need to get ourselves just being the community. Like we were at your house just a week ago. Sitting in the backyard with your neighbors. Just doing church together. And what is doing church together? It's a people who are loving each other, enjoying each other, in a context where you don't have to perform to get each other to like each other, 
in a context where there's mercy as we see each other fall on their face, but also a context of rules and laws, laws that make us flourish. We don't have it together. We don't have it together. That's not my point. We're a community of the people who don't have it together and know it. And it changes everything. And so let me just close with this. Back to the happiness studies. I came upon an interesting commencement. I I wrote about it in the last quarterly. Some of you know uh, uh, Congressman Ben Sass um, in Nebraska was a member of this church for a while, but he also just gave the commencement address at my my alma mater, and that sent out to all the alums, and I listened to it and was surprised, oh, there's Ben Sass. And, um, and he, it wasn't political, believe me. If you know Ben, he, he's a two-kingdom guy. He wouldn't dare bring it into that context. Um, but he, uh, but he, he really had come upon, he's written this book, evidently, um, something about we need more adults. I can't remember the name. You might remember Virtuous Adults, something like that. And um, he's talking really about raising children in it. But, but the context of this, he re- referenced these, these happiness studies. And it was interesting because the prognosis, if, if happiness, as he makes the point, it's all in the literature, that, that outside of your genetics, outside of, the, of, of not having a crisis in your life, the most important thing regarding happiness that all these studies show is this neighborhood thing we're talking about. It's having a neighborhood. And I don't mean that geographically. I mean that interconnected, interdependent web of relationships. And he, he made a few uh, quote. He, he quoted a couple of, of statistics here. As for the prognosis for neighborliness going forward, in the 70s, the average job duration was 2.5 decades. My father never had another job. He worked with GE his whole life after he got out of the Air Force. Never had another job. What do you think it is today? It's 3.5 years. That's, what, 30 years from 2.5, 3.5 years. I mean, 2.5 decades to 3.5 years. Think about the impact that has on neighborhoods on social interconnectedness and interdependence. There is a massive pushback, praise God, on globalism right now. And the kind of globalism, at least, that prevents people from moving too much. I'm hearing it all the time. My, my church plant, our church planters up in, in Spokane tells a story of how people are saying no to job relocation. They're the younger people. They're saying no to working too many hours because they want to have neighborhood. Some of you are nodding your head. You know what I'm talking about. It's coming because there's not happiness. I mean, we way underestimate, way underestimate longevity of relationships, longevity of interconnectedness in a social web of of, of belief and, and gathered law, et cetera. And he looked at that and he says, unlike any other, and every historian says, you know, of course, one of the things you do as a historian, you never say things are unique. If you know anything about history, they're never unique. Well, Ben Sass, a historian, says, you know, I think this is unique. And you'd have to go, go listen to the, Google it, and you'll see why he says that. Corresponding to job disruption and its corresponding unsettledness is a crisis of loneliness like never before, wherein 40% of Americans never get to discuss anything meaningful with anyone anymore. said in a given year, I never had a meaningful conversation with someone. Do you understand what you have and do as a matter of habit that your next door neighbor is craving for? Believe in yourselves, Christians. Not in yourselves, you know what I mean by it. In Christ in you. And if the 90s American averaged 3.5 close friends in just 20 years, it has been reduced to 1.5. And men, it's less. How many friends do you have? I mean, really close friends that you share life with in an interconnected, interdependent way. I bet you're somewhere in that, that ratio, if not less. And then there's the howling out of local communities by the continuing deconstruction of institutions. 
much like the church. Now, with this in mind, think about what we do as a church. The now, not yet of the kingdom of God means that when we gather and socialize as a church, we, albeit imperfectly, begin to experience what the whole world is craving. And we're afraid to invite them? We're afraid to share it? Considering the description of heaven insofar as the church lives under the lordship and the presence of communion with Christ, and I say insofar as because we are imperfect, I keep saying that, we still rely on him as our lamb every day, don't we? And finding that just being the church, just being the church in our neighborhoods is the most powerful witness we have. Like never before, it's interesting, I hear people rethinking the 60s revolution that transformed the meaning of morality to nothing but tolerance. And tolerance isn't working. And I'm hearing more and more people, younger people especially, going back. Let me read about why Rome fell. What happened there? And you know the thesis if you know it, the book, written in the 1776 by a British historian. It was the demise of morality and the demise of socialization. Interesting. We're coming to a table. One, if you're a Christian, be thankful. You are participating, albeit through a glass dimly, if you will. You are participating in heaven itself, being a Christian in the body of Christ. And then bring a new resolve that your time spent raising that child in Christian baptism, catechizing her and your children, bringing them to church, getting them out in the city like many of you did this week with the greater church of New Haven, working alongside of fellow Christians. Boy, my fellowship was sweet yesterday with this beautiful Nigerian couple who goes to the vertical church. We had a blast. Every time I wake up saying, I don't want to go. Every time I wake up and I say, I don't want to go. Every time I go to this, that, work days, whatever they are. Every time I walk by and I go, dang. That was fulfilling. You see, we don't know what fulfills us. We think private time does. Bull. We need a little bit of that. We need each other. Let's pray.